Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us for our panel today. Uh, nothing boring with the Copyright Royalty Board. I, I know we're up competing against some uh, very interesting other panels, so really appreciate y'all being here with us today. Um, sometimes the most dry stuff is actually the most interesting because it's the most important. Um, so we're going to try to give some information to y'all on what's going on um, with the Copyright Royalty Board uh, and that information, you know, I hope uh, it's helpful for you. My name is John Riley. I am an assistant general counsel at the United States Copyright Office, and I'm really, really excited to be uh, joined today by two amazing um, songwriters. Uh, on my right is uh, songwriter Aaron McNally, who recently wrote a song for Jimmy Buffett's Life on the Flip Side, which peaked at number two uh, on the Billboard 200. She co-owns Factory of Strange Tones with her husband, Mick Utley. Hey, Mick. <laughs> um, and is on the board of the Songwriters of North America. She's also developed uh, an educational program with the Artist Rights Alliance. On her right uh, is Autumn Rowe. So Autumn has worked with Dua Lipa, Pipple, Zendaya, Ava Max, The Knox, Tori Kelly, and John Batiste, having co-written five of the songs on his Grammy-winning Grammy album of the year. I'm not going to say that five times fast, but there were five <laughs> songs on the album. Uh, we are. Autumn also serves on the board of Songwriters North America, and in addition to being a songwriter, is a music producer. And we're really happy to have them both today. We did have a third songwriter who uh, was going to join us, Tiffany Red. Fortunately, Tiffany got sick and couldn't come today, but we hope she uh, gets well soon. So thank you both for being here. Um, as we get going, I think first thing we need to do is set the stage a little bit. Um, and my first question is going to be to Autumn on this. So to help set the stage, can you let the audience know uh, what types of works, what types of copyrights are associated with music? And it gets, it gets uh, much more in, uh, nerdy in a second, but we got to kind of get the basics down for everybody. So Autumn, can you help us with that first? Yes. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. I know this isn't the most exciting, the most lit panel, <laughs> but we're trying to make it fun for y'all. Um, so I am not like a lawyer or anybody super technical, so I'm going to speak in the most layman's terms because that's what I understand. Um, I'm literally just a creative. But basically, there's the composition side and the master side. So the easiest way I can explain it, especially to like younger folks, is kind of like when Taylor Swift re-recorded her masters. Um, the composition stayed the same. So she like called her producer, she called her um, songwriter, co-writers, and was like, hey, the songs that we created, the melodies, the lyrics, they're all gonna be used, but I'm re-recording the actual audio recording of it. So basically, that's all there is. There's just these two different sides. Yeah, so the, the two different sides in the, uh, the musical work side, which is the publishing, the songwriting side, and the sound recording side are very differently regulated by the government. And maybe confusingly, the musical work side, you know, with songwriters and publishers, are much more regulated uh, compared to the sound recording side. When did you first realize that the government regulates music to, to this extent? Because I think it surprises some people. Only recently, like in the last... Unfortunately, I wish in the beginning of my career I was more um, aware and paid more attention to so many things. But 
when you're in this like hustle stage of you just kind of trying to write the best songs, trying to get in the rooms, trying to, you know, not work a job. Um, you're not really thinking too much about like all this other stuff. Like, well, how does this work? How does that work? You're just like, oh, I'm with ASCAP. I'm probably good, right? No, it doesn't work like that. Um, and and it's I honestly think it's designed that way on purpose. So we are in the dark constantly, and we don't know what's going on around us because it's really easy to take advantage of people when you don't know you're being taken advantage of. So really, only in the last like few, maybe like six years six, maybe seven years I started really like caring a lot more and realized like how many times I've been duped constantly well yeah part of the reason we want to be here today is to make sure that that doesn't happen and get people up to speed um, you know, so they don't have to go through that as much um, we are going to be talking more about the songwriter side today we have great songwriters with us so Aaron um can you help us out by talking a little bit, you know, I think Autumn uh, mentioned PROs or ASCAP. Can you talk a little bit about songwriters' income sources? I can, but first, I want to thank you and thank Holland from the Copyright Office um, I, for being here and for putting on educational programming all over the country. I grew up, um, my father's a songwriter, my mom ran my dad's publishing company out of her house, and I grew up watching her seal the envelopes to you guys and feeling like, it was the Wizard of Oz. Like the, <laughs> there were no actual humans involved, so it's really nice to see you guys out here and and joining forces with songwriters. So thank you for having us. Um, so there are three main revenue sources for songwriters. Um, one is a public performance royalty. One is mechanical, and one is sync. So a public performance royalty um, covers like if a song plays in a restaurant, or if a song plays on the radio, um, digital or terrestrial, um, or if an artist is playing it live. So there's a, a performance royalty due at, at the at those times, and that is paid through your PRO, so ASCAP or BMI or CSAC. Um, and then there is a mechanical royalty due. So a mechanical royalty started out in 1909, I believe, was the first payment of a mechanical royalty. Um, and that is that was sort of for the reproduction or the selling of um, of a song. So a, a sound recording of a, of a musical work. Um, every time it sold, starting in 1909, it, it paid two cents for a long period of time. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, and then, so so that covers um, physical sales of music and then also now digital as well, digital streams, which we'll also, we'll also get into down the road. And then the the final third is sync. And um, so sync is the only sort of free market where you can negotiate as a songwriter and a publisher how much you make when a song is synced to television or to film. Yeah, so... Uh when you you highlighted something that we're going to get uh, more in depth on in a second here, but you know back in the day, if you're wondering why it's called a, a mechanical royalty or a mechanical right, it's because this is goes back to 1909 when you know songs were played on player pianos and other mechanical instruments, and so we retain that that name, which is a little kind of you know anachronistic, um, but in fact it's no longer just kind of physical goods, um, whether it was like a record or an 8-track player or a CD or um, now, it actually also applies to uh, a royalty that you get when your work is uh, played on interactive streaming services like Spotify or Tidal or Apple Music, things like that. You get, uh, as a songwriter or publisher, you know, two pieces. One is the mechanical piece and the second is the performance piece. Right, sorry. 
it's good. No, yeah. <laughs> we, we're just, you know, we're just riffing up here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you said that sync is the only, like, free market piece uh, for songwriters. I think we're not going to talk today about PROs and how they're regulated by the government. We're going to focus a little bit on the mechanical piece and, you know, how are mechanicals, how is that regulated by the government? How are those rates set? Sure. So the, the two different sort of um, di streams here. So for the physical, um, they're both set by the same organization. So the Copyright Royalty Board sets the rates for both, um, both for physical and for digital. Um, is that what you're yep. referring? Okay, yep. yeah. <laughs> So it's a, and you want to go into the Copyright Royalty Board? Yeah, so okay. what is the Copyright Royalty Board? Sure, sure. It was founded in, I believe, 2006, correct? 2005, 2006? Yeah, they, they had, it had a, a earlier precursor boards that were, had different names, but we're, it's the Copyright Royalty this Board This iteration? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's three judges that oversee the rate setting for for mechanical royalties um, as it concerns songwriters. So it's three judges, and it's sort of, it's a trial essentially every five years that sets the rates for the the coming five years yeah and so they'll set mechanical rates um they set other rates including audiovisual works like nothing to do with music uh but it also there's set some other rates that uh, have to do with the sound recording side but the mechanical one, uh piece is interesting because there's been a lot going on with that late lately mm -hmm. um so uh, one other piece we wanted to add is just to make sure, and we're going to repeat this again because it's a big point about mechanicals. In the last few years, the world has changed about how mechanicals have been paid when, they're, when works are used on streaming services. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, just um, we can go back to 1909 for a second, because just as when this happened, when, when they started to consider a royalty for mechanicals, there was a confusion about if they should even pay that. They didn't because looking at a piano roll, they couldn't tell what song it was. So they like, is this actually due? Is the sound recording due um, a payment? There was there was talk around I think 2006 when streaming really became popular about was it a mechanical was it a performance I think that's why it wound up both <laughs> um in a way so um so they um have set the rates every five years for physical which is the phono records um and then they set the rates every five years for the digital separately and that is the digital phono records and the way that that money gets paid out is a little differently. Yes, yes. So for um, for digital um, mechanicals, it gets paid out through the Mechanical Licensing Collective, which is an organization that was put into place by the Music Modernization Act, which was passed in 2018. Yeah, and so this is kind of, we're trying to get the word out, um, especially because we just like talking to people about copyrights and music and everything else, but we also want to make sure that everybody knows that, you know, of these different income sources, you know, you need to... Uh, affiliate with a PRO to get paid for your uh, performance rights, but you need to uh, register with the Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC, the MLC.com, um, to get paid mechanicals. And it's pretty important because the, I don't have exact numbers, but what I'm understanding is that of the royalties that the songwriters and performers gets for their for the composition, about half of them, maybe 55%, should come from publishing um, on streaming services. The other half or 45% is going to be coming from mechanical. So you're missing out on some revenue if you're not signed up with the MLC. I will say if you have a publisher, your publisher is going to do that for you. But if you're self-administered, uh, you go to the MLC yourself and sign up. But also I want to 
point. That's a good point. That um, yes, if you're self-administered, you can do everything yourself at the MLC. But if you're a songwriter, you also have access to your data, so you can check your data and hold your publishers accountable if if it's not if it's not correct. I found so many songs recently that I don't even remember writing, and I don't know how they are registered, which is also weird to me. But like from 20 years ago, and I'm like, was this ever released? Mm. Am I not collecting on? Like I don't know. But I'm curious, how many songwriters are here? Awesome. How many are self-published? How many are signed up with the MLC? So there are some people here who are self-published who probably are missing money. Get your coins. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Aaron set us up and said, okay, the Copyright Royalty Board, the three-judge panel in D.C., who, by the way, is not a part of the Copyright Office, sets the rates and terms for this right. And they do so every five years. And Autumn, you participated in the latest proceeding. Uh, it did result in a settlement, but you were one of five songwriters who did participate uh, you know, as a witness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And how you, yeah, how so I was actually trying to recruit other songwriters to be witnesses for the CRB trial. Um, and somehow someone nominated me to do it, and I didn't think I was qualified enough. Um, I didn't want to do it. I was like, this sounds really scary, but I ended up being one of the witnesses. Um, Basically, you know, it's uh, months and months and months um, telling your story to amazing people representing you, and um, it's very... uh, I felt like I was on the cross a bit because I had to give my statements, you know, every every penny I'd made or didn't make um, over my entire career. Um, it was very just like exposed. Uh, I told my entire story and this was made public. They blur out the exact numbers, of course, but, you know, everyone in the court can see those things. And I'm like, wow, this is a crazy experience but I felt like it was really necessary to do and um, we have to like do things for the better good of our community and I'm like if I don't do it who who else is going to do it I don't know so it's worth it because if we come out on top then everybody wins and I'm, I'm so happy that we settled um, in, a, in a way that's a step forward is it perfect no but like it's moving forward and things are getting better, so that's really good. But yeah, it is a crazy experience, and I also want to say like, sorry, that was so New York. I will so, um, but like, I also want to say like, a lot of people are really afraid to speak out and come forward for things that you're unhappy with in your industry. I know there's a lot of like gatekeepers or people won't like me, they won't work with me, especially for women. We often feel like, oh, I don't want to be difficult or all these kinds of things. I'm seeing a lot of head nods. Um, Fuck that shit. Like, (laughs) fuck that shit. Be you. it's all BS. Like it's not true. Like that. Those days, I I don't see those days as existing. It's such a different atmosphere, a different climate now. We have so much creative control, and we can. We. It's just a different time. Like speak your truth, do what's right. You know, if if you're standing up for something that's gonna help a lot of people, that's the right thing to do. Don't don't live in fear. Also, just remember, like your talent comes from inside of you. Nobody gave that to you. Nobody can take it away. <laughs> you wake up and you go to sleep just as talented 
And that stuff is the magic. Like, that's what makes you you. That's your art. That's your voice. So don't forget how valuable that is. And just know that it's, it's always with you. So you are powerful, and your voice really does matter. Thank yeah. you, guys. My, my colleague, Holland, was looking for some quotes to tweet out from the copyright office. I think we have a bunch in there that we could use. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, you know, I I don't actually know how people um, find out about the Copyright Royalty Board, but you also participated with a group, and that group included publishers and other songwriters. Um, you know, thank you for doing that. It it seems like, you know, your narrative is is out there publicly, but they also demanded all these financial records from you. That was, that I mean, did you know that was going to happen coming in, or yeah. I knew it was going to be, um, you know, something I wasn't used to. I've never had to, like, give out my statements. You know, I've owned, very few people have seen my statements before. So it's, you know, it's very, like, um, but it's But it is what it is, you know? Like, some, you have good years, you have bad years. Um, and it was important to show, like, the years before streaming and then when streaming came into the picture, how money changed and how much money how many streams do you really need to make money an insane amount of streams and a certain percentage of writing on those streams as a songwriter you would need so you know all those things are really important because it's interesting a lot of the people that um are advocating they're not necessarily songwriters so they don't know like they need to see this information to know like is it true so yeah it just really matters yeah and this is it's a, a more formal type proceeding than I think most people realize because these are you know it's a, a three-judge panel in in the Library of Congress but it feels a lot like a court proceeding um, I understand just oh yeah it was a, a real court thing yeah for sure yeah, very very official. I was I was gonna go like full El Woods though, like <laughs> legally blonde and watch it twenty times. I was gonna go all the way. And I'm kind of disappointed that it yeah. that, that it settled because we have your written statement, but we didn't actually get to see you testify. And I, you know, yeah, I was gonna hearing. borrow dog everything. <laughs> Love it. Amazing. Um, so Autumn was a participant. Aaron, you were not a participant, but you did provide comments in particular to the part that dealt with the rates for physical products. So CDs, um, it's actual di digital downloads to uh, final records. So there is a royalty associated with that that the Copyright Royalty Board sets. They set a separate rate that we're going to talk about in a, in a second for the interactive streaming part of the mechanicals. Um, can you tell me what, what was going on there and why you got involved? How does the CRB set those rates? Sure, so uh, we mentioned earlier that in 1909, the rate was set at two cents, and that stayed that way until the 70s. So there was no rise for inflation. It stayed right there, right? And then it incrementally went up. I don't know if you wanna. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna hit this up um, in a second, but I'll preview for it here, where we go. So this is, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but these are the rates over time. Yeah, and as you can see, we'll, we'll talk about this more, um, but there's a little flat line there at the end um, until it spikes there. Okay, great. <laughs> so yes, so it, it, uh, it flatlined in 2006, right? Um, and then it stayed that way for a very long time. 
So um, until it was recontemplated, and they there was a settlement that was reached um, by the parties uh, in the last rate setting that um, that was objected to by one participant and then because of that participant which we can get into because of that participant we were able to um send in comments i guess we could have sent in comments no matter what but it, they wouldn't have had the same weight i believe is so yeah this is um a part of the the challenge with the structure with the copyright royalty board um it's designed to encourage settlements and so what happened in this case was there was a settlement and as the parties tell us it's because appearing before the copyright royalty board is very expensive right yeah it is <laughs> it's very expensive and so you know and i think the argument that was being made by the parties that settled was that um let's focus on streaming let's not think about um, physicals but i can tell you from since we're talking about personal experience from our experience we still make way more money from physical and download um, sales. Um, it's it's a lot. It's significant. So when that settlement came out and they said we're going to keep this rate frozen it, to essentially, I, I think, to essentially make it a, um, a more possible to to raise rates for streaming, we're like that doesn't make any sense, <laughs> right? Like that that was sort of the impetus for a lot of a, a lot of in, independent songwriters to reach out and say, hey, we we don't agree with this. Yeah, so the, the different groups that participate in this trial-like proceeding um, to set mechanical rates are a group of copyright owners, of which Autumn was one, which includes songwriters and publishers. But there's also um, the services, the Spotify's of the world, and all the labels, because it's the labels that are paying the physical mechanicals. So they, uh, the labels and the copyright owners decided to settle because for what I understand, it was a very ex expensive proceeding. I've heard it could cost like ten million dollars for a party to, pr mm. you know, with all the lawyers that people hired to uh, to get through the proceeding, the discovery and related um, costs associated with that. Sure. So that's why there was a settlement. We're going to talk a little bit more about the details of what happened next in a hot second, but um, generally, it is not uncommon for there to be settlements in these type of proceedings. In fact, the last well, they aim for there to be settlements, right? right? So that it's not as expensive. <laughs> right. Yeah, and the the problem with the the physical one is it had settled for a, a lot of years in a row. Right. Um, but the the streaming mechanicals um, and the 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 physical rate is a penny rate. There's an accelerator. Right. Right. So now, so what wound up happening with that um, when so the the copyright royalty board rejected that settlement and came out with a new rate. So it was uh, 9.1 cents, um, and it had been that way since 2006. Um, and that had come up incrementally from the 70s, right? Um, and and landed at 9.1 cents. So now it's 12.1 cents um, per song or 2.31 cents per minute, whichever pays more. Is that right? Yeah. It's after after five minutes. It becomes uh, this other kind of, yeah. So it's a little bit different though on the streaming side. That's a little bit more complicated. I think people can, you know, multiply 9.1 cents or 12 cents by. Right, right. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the mic and tell yeah, you a little bit. Because um, yeah. I definitely don't understand the interactive streaming rate. So don't be afraid of this also this is a very very oversimplified chart about how streaming uh, mechanicals have been um, calculated in the past so it depends a lot on what offering 
um, is available. So there's a lot of different types of uh, the services have different offerings. So for example, if you have uh, Spotify and it's only on your phone, that's one type of offering. If you have Spotify and you're pairing it with Hulu, like a bundled offering, they call that. They have different rates. That the calculations are slightly different for all of these. Um, but we're not going to talk about the different numbers for the 10 or 12 different offerings that are there. Um, we're going to talk about kind of the ways that they're consistent here. So um, generally, you have to go through four steps to figure out a streaming rate. And this is why everybody thinks this is so complicated, um, because not only is this just kind of boiled down calculation, uh, still complicated. There's a lot of different nuances with this. Uh, overtime adjustments, uh, pieces that have other uh, nuances in terms of how subscribers are counted. But what you generally do is you take as a first step, um, you have to figure out what they call the all-in royalty rate. And it's a greater of calculation. So it's either a percentage of revenue when you think revenue, it could be advertisers, it could be subscribers paying their monthly fees. Um, and then you compare that, and, and there's a percentage there. So they take a percentage of that. Depending on the year, it's, it's I think, right now 15.1%. Um, and then you compare that to something called the total cost of content. And that's a term of art, but what it really means is you take a percentage of how much the service is paying the labels. Because remember, services have to get a lot of different rights. They have to get a public performance right for music. They have to get a mechanical for music. And they have to get reproduction and performance for sound recordings, the label side. So at the end of the day, the greater of those calculations is taken and plugged into a second step where public performance rights for musical works are taken out. That number is compared to a different number, and this is not for all of the offerings, but some of the offerings. Some of the offerings have what's called a royalty floor. And that royalty floor is a per subscriber number that the step two calculation is compared to. And whatever the greater of those is, that is the money that's going to be divided up amongst all the different songs for your per stream rate. The reason, like, when I was, we were all preparing for this, we were talking about, okay, well, what's the number? And it really depends on so many different factors. The, the amount of money that a service gets in, the offering that's there, how much they're paying for uh, sound recording rates, which we don't necessarily know like as a member of the public because that's highly confidential information. And then <clears throat> all the different pieces of does it hit the royalty floor or not, um, we don't know that either. We do can figure out some trends because we know how much the mechanical licensing collective pays out but to give a simple answer of well what's the rate it's a little bit more complicated when we're comparing it to say oh 12 cents for <laughs> for a physical record we can't easily do that um here so i Autumn, i know that was complicated um i'm wondering from your perspective there i've heard in the past for example that um, songwriters don't want to know all that fun stuff because they want to focus on songwriting. But I've also heard more recently, like not just from yourself, but from Aaron and others, that songwriters want to get more involved. They want to learn the more boring stuff. They want to get involved. Like, how do you deal with that tension where, you know, part of your job might be just creating and part of it might be on the business side? Well, I think... This sounds weird, but I think it's a luxury to be able to afford to care. 
And I say that because when most of us are in this phase of trying to make it, we don't have the bandwidth to spend time on this stuff. This is for people who have time. We are out there trying to, because I have been there for a very long time, you know, trying to figure out a way to make money. But once you start making money, I think you really get to, you get the luxury to take a step back and do self-care in a lot of ways. And part of that self-care is this stuff, right? It's like, wait a second, how does my business work? You start realizing you are an entrepreneur. This is your business. You're building your brand. And how how is this being monetized? Is Is this fair? Is this not? And then you start digging deep. And that's why a lot of the advocates are maybe a little bit older or have more experience and they can afford to do those things. Um, it is much more rare for me to meet like a new songwriter or, or younger people because most at that point you just you want relationships you want connections you want access to things um so i think as like people are having success and and growing up in the industry they can afford to do this a little bit more and that's kind of what we're seeing right now in the advocacy space and um i think it's really important that we stay in touch and we are on the ground and we're interacting and we're in rooms and we're writing with younger people and we're we're educating them on the things we didn't have. Like when I was coming up, you know, I just had my space and I didn't have stuff like I could I couldn't afford to come to South by Southwest when I was starting out. I couldn't do any of these things. Um, there was no Instagram where I could DM people for information. It's just different now. There's just a level of access and a, and a different awakening and awareness. So, yeah. I want Aaron to follow up, but I do want to say something real quick. I very much appreciate my friends on the stage here because we're the copyright office, we're the government. We actually cannot pay for people to come fly in for us. We have to ask them to pay their own way. And, you know, for them to do that and to care about what's going on and to, to speak out on it, I, you know, can't say thank you enough for that. I really do appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Well, I, w I was going to add to that too. I think that there is a, when you look at that chart and you go cross-eyed, you did a great job of explaining it, but it still made me cross-eyed. Um, no offense. Um, but when you look at that and, and, and then you're looking at your statements and it's sometimes pennies, it's easy to not care. Mm -hmm. It's easy to turn your head. And I also, I'm really bad at math, so like if I give, if I'm checking out of the store and they, and they give me change, I'm like, I don't know, okay, whatever. Like I'm not going to like check it. Um, but you really have to care. You have to get, in order to advocate for yourself moving forward, for, for this to grow, for, for it to become a real revenue stream, um, or that, that's a sustaining revenue stream, that you don't have to be hustling in other areas, that you can really focus on songwriting. You, know, you really have to pay attention to those pennies. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very important to get into these details. But it's hard. Like I just looked at my last Sony statement. It's almost 3,000 pages. Seriously, I'm not like an astronaut. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't study that kind of math. I don't know what these people are talking about. I really don't. Like, I have no idea. You could be saying anything in those statements, mumbo jumbo. I don't know if it's right. I have no idea what's going on still. Like, I still feel like I don't know anything. And the, the frustrating part is the more I'm learning, the more I know I really don't know anything. Because as soon as you think you know something, you realize that's not true. That's not how it works. That's not the right number. This isn't right. And I'm like, I don't know anything. I don't know why I'm here. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> we love that you're here. Right. Um, I, you know, I 
I think that part of the, the complication of this is people also don't understand why it's so complicated. Um, but when we were talking about how the rates are calculated, the streaming rates for mechanicals, um, there might have been some things you noticed, like I was talking about record labels. Um, I mentioned something called the mechanical floor. And I, it's a little bit hard, to, especially for people who are, are not, you know, familiar with the Copyright Royalty Board to understand why those things might be there, but they gave us some insight um, in a recent or a determination a couple of years ago as to some thinking or discussion about why these different pieces are there. And when we were talking about, uh, and I'll share it now, um, when we were talking about the ways that the government inconsistently, and I'm from the government, I could say we inconsistently regulate the music industry, um, part of that really dictates why the rate is a little bit complicated. So certain uses of uh, sound recordings are regulated and certain other uses are unregulated. They're in the free market. I mean, we talked about how sync's in the free market, but the labels are able to negotiate their terms and their rates with the interactive streaming services on their own. That's in the free market. The music piece isn't, and so that create. Uh, so I say music, but I meant musical work. Um, that piece is uh, regulated by the government for the mechanicals, and the performance piece is uh, regulated in a different way, not by the Copyright Royalty Board, but there's something called consent decrees. It's an antitrust issue. It's completely out of the topic for today. But the long story short is what happens is the Copyright Royalty Board doesn't come out and say, um, okay, we're going to uh, dedicate X amount of royalties to the sound recording side, the label side, and Y amount of royalties to the musical work side because they don't have the authority to do that. And when the different um, rates were being negotiated back in the day, they originally came out with a structure that was similar to what we had shown right now. And it accounts for a few different interests. One is that the services, I think everybody understands that even if you want the services to pay more money, they can't pay over 100%, and they still need to pay their costs uh, to operate. So if you had a risk where a percentage was you know, uh, 15% or, or even more for the musical work side, there is some concern that the sound recording side could get uh, a percentage that's higher than allowing the services to operate. Or even, you know, theoretically, they could be over 100%. So part of that calculation there, which takes that greater of um, the revenue prong or the total cost of content prong, is supposed to account for some of that. The other piece, though, um, and we, we don't see a mechanical floor for every offering, but we do see for some, is an understanding that even though um, you know the the musical work side has a couple of different you know ways to get paid, they could get paid for performances or they could get paid for um, mechanical. Mechanical is still worth something, and it's really important too for publishers because, as songwriters know, publishers can recoup from mechanicals. They don't typically recoup uh -huh. from performance. So that ensures that a little bit of the um, royalty streams are balanced so some money doesn't just go all through the, the performance and some money doesn't go all through mechanical. And you saw a discount, you know, a deduction for performance. 
part of that, the discussion that the copyright royalty judges wrote was that, well, the services are concerned that, in theory, they can get a, a royalty rate for performance, but if they don't have a mechanical, then they still can't use the song on an interactive streaming services and vice versa. So it's a complementary uh, uh, right that they have to get, so they have to get both of them. And so what the CRJs can do is say, well, we're going to make sure that that's accounted for. We know you should get X amount, um, but we want to make sure that the streams are a little bit more um, distributed in terms of royalty streams for, for that. So that explains why a little bit of this is complicated, although it's not very clear uh, to what degree any of those arguments are a part of the determination because, again, we settle. So this has been discussed in the past, and these are some theories, and maybe it's helpful to see why that's so complicated. But there is a reason that it is complicated, and I guess there is a reason why there's how many pages of your statement? <laughs> but it's all industry complication. We're going to have questions near the end, uh, but stick around for that. All right, so let's keep moving. Um, so we've been talking, Aaron, about settlements. So can you tell us a little bit more about your experience related to the physical part and the settlement? You, you started to tell us about somebody who objected. Let's just uh, flesh that out a little bit more. What happened next? Sure. So uh, a gentleman named George Johnson objected um, and was asking, I can't remember the exact number that he was asking for. I tried to look it up. I think he was asking for 53 cents a, a, a sale or something like that, which was um, not what we were asking or thinking of thinking about asking for. But because he had done that and because he had was making that argument, we were able to come in and say we we agree that we think that it should be higher um, than 9.1 cents settling at that rate. So um, there is um, a way to subscribe to the Copyright Royalty Board's um, updated documents. So I subscribed to that and was seeing what people were saying. Um, I, I highly recommend everybody do that. Um, it can also make you go cross-eyed, but just knowing what people are submitting. Sometimes people are submitting, you know, two-sentence things. Sometimes people are submitting, you know, formal documents. Um, but just knowing what is ha what's happening, what people are saying, what the opinions are, and then um, knowing that we have the ability to do that ourselves to formally submit to these judges what what our opinions are is really important. So that's when we, when I jumped in. Yeah. So there's a distinction though because um, without that person objecting. Um, tell us why that was, again, why that's important, because you weren't a quote-unquote participant. You right. were a commenter. Commenter, right. So they can, the Copyright Royalty Board can only reject a settlement if, um, due to a participant, um, the argument from the participant, or if it's if the settlement itself is illegal. So that's, that's important. So it's basically, George sort of put a wedge in the door and kept it open for, for us to be considered more because he was already involved. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, and they and they ultimately agreed with you and the arguments that said that you know we shouldn't accept this right. settlement, which is very rare to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that was the first time I I know about that that happened. And so they came back, um, the parties that is the the copyright owners and the record labels, and had this new twelve cent settlement. Right. And did you support that then? Yes because it was a step forward and because it also had an incremental um, raise. So every year it will be um, reconsidered due to the its cost. What is it called? Cost? Um, cost of living. Cost of living. Well, isn't there a formal term? This is the consumer price index. Consumer price index, yeah. But it's cost of living. It's basically inflation. So every year that will be reconsidered um, and there will be 
I mean, with the way things are going, there will be a, a slight raise um, year over year. Yeah, so we're at uh, right around 12 cents now, but in a year, it won't be 12 cents. It'll be adjusted right. using that numbers, and, and uh, the consumer price index is an odd uh, way to kind of figure out inflation where they take uh, consumer goods and uh, measure them year over year and then get an average of uh, what it increases or decreases um, the cost to consumers. Um, all right, so that was for the physical side. There was also a settlement on the streaming side. And there's been a lot going on with <laughs> what is happening with the, the streaming side. W what's the latest on the current rate, uh, the current rate setting five-year term? That settlement was adopted recently. Is that not right? Yes. Yeah, so as of January 1st, that took, uh, that went into action. I believe, is it 44%? raise around there it depends on what you're measuring right. from. <laughs> so I, don't, I cannot get a straight answer exactly what the number is but i know that um starting january 1st it went up um i have asked so many people and i love tangible real like results and advice and to give people something like super easy to understand and unfortunately i don't have that answer but i know it's more money um than we were getting um almost double almost almost yeah i don't know close to 44 percent. i don't know exactly what the number is so you know as i was saying before because it's really hard to calculate what a streaming rate is as a per play rate it's hard to figure out but if you've seen that 44 percent number um it's based on what they call the headline rate so that first of the two prong calculation you know the percentage of revenue rate that has increased uh and in fact in on january 1st in, increased pretty significantly but it may be even more uh significant because people i don't think understand the rates in these five-year terms they name them uh they call it phono records two term phono records three term phono records four term we're now in the fourth iteration of these rate settings with before the copyright royalty board they finished that in December. It was uh, in place by January 1st. But the confusing thing, I think, is that the Frona Records 3 term, and now we got another slide for this. We don't have rates for that yet. We do not. So that's, that's a function of what had happened. What had happened was um, the, the parties before, instead of settling for the Frona Records 3 period, there was a um, determination, and that was appealed to federal court. As a result of that, the federal court remanded the rate setting back to the copyright royalty judges. So what was going on was the Phono Records 3 rate setting and the Phono Records 4 rate setting were going on at the same time. Federal court takes a long time to move forward, so that's why it was a little bit of a lag getting it back. But the parties asked um, the copyright royalty judges to focus on the phono records for term. And the reason for that was that the Mechanical Licensing Collective wanted to pay everyone the right royalties at the first instance. And so they're able to do that with phono records four. However, we need to have a phono records three final determination uh, before we know what the rates are. And so what had been happening was until the appeal was sent back to the to the board, they were paying on an, uh, a rate that was not the final rate. But um, when that appeal was successful, 
And it was all the parties who were involved, even George Johnson. In fact, the case is Johnson versus Copyright Royalty Board. Um, when that happened, uh, you know, the sending the, the rates back to the board triggered an event which was putting the Phono Records 2 rates in place. And so the MLC and all the other um, you know, people who were getting direct payments under Phono Records 3 were getting paid at what we what were the Phono Records 2 rate and what we don't know is the, the right rate quite yet. But once that happens, um, and this is one of the reasons why something very boring is very important, they're going to need to true up. And I've heard that is going to be a significant true up. And, and in fact, the rates over the course of the Phono Records 3 term by the last year, that's where the 44% number came, is by that last year it was going to increase to 15.1% and be paid out uh, compared to the 2017 rate as a headline rate, it's going to be that much more money. This is even more complicated, though, because as you'll see, the MMA was passed, and on January 21st, 2021, that's when the MLC started paying out folks. So those 2021 years and 2022 years, the MLC needs to do calculations for those years um, and reprocess all that data and all any new royalties that are paid over Years before that, if the work was matched and identified, it's, it's going to go to the publisher um, for the true up. So we're still waiting on a final determination. I know it's going to be soon-ish, I would guess, in the next two, maybe three months. Um, the Copyright Royalty Board right now, because it does other things, it's been working on a cable distribution proceeding has nothing to do with uh, the music industry. But after that, they're going to be able to you know, finalize the Phono Records 3 rates. What happens then, though, is the MLC will be paying out monthly royalties. They'll be recalculating the 21 and 22, 22 royalties. And then, because there's a provision of the Music Modernization Act that has uh, a limitation of liability piece where uh, different services, if they were missing licenses, they could get off the hook from liability if they had done a few different things, including paying some of those past royalties for, to the MLC to pay out once the MLC identified the right copyright owner. They have to pay that money to the MLC too. So we have three different categories of data and, and time periods for the MLC to do calculations on. It's a lot of work to do, but once we have those final rates, they will be able to pay out correct royalties going forward and then figure out any royalties they have to adjust going backwards. But it is going to be uh, a not insignificant amount of money going to be a lot of money but again you're only going to get paid by the mlc if you're registered and that's maybe right. you have a mathematician friend <laughs> right so that's that's a lot of boring information but uh the mlc has paid out now from 2021 to right about now a billion dollars in royalties so there's a lot of money involved and understanding that there's even more money um to make an adjustment for looking backwards. The time is now to get your information in and make sure you're paid right. I just have a quick question for the self-published songwriters who were not signed up with the MLC yet. Um, have you heard of it before today? No. Um, I have, can I ask you a question? <laughs> where, where do you think, like, where could it have been posted or advertised or a banner or a website like that would get your attention? So we're going to uh, have a bunch of 
kind of closing questions about songwriters and participation and, and why that might be important or challenging. I mean, we have heard a lot more since um, the last couple of proceedings, in particular for the mechanical rates, about participation. People, you know, were discussing the challenges of you know, submitting comments but not being able to object to a settlement because they're not a participant. We've even heard a lot from the publishers and others about wanting to make settlements easier. What can you tell us about, you know, the benefits of participating as, as a songwriter? Is that going to be too expensive then, for too challenging? Is that something that they should be doing? What are your thoughts? Um, like to participate as like a In a CRB or proceeding, yeah. I mean, I was a part of a much bigger case uh, with a lot of people because I know it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I don't recommend anyone doing that by themselves. <laughs> That's literally why we're here because we're not getting paid. Um, but yeah, I, I think just like going back to what I said earlier, any any opportunity you have to advocate for yourself and your community and make this something viable that we can have like an ecosystem that actually can exist for people after us um, participate in if you can like just get involved like getting involved and having access and it's everything and you also like this is literally an industry built off of networking you just never know who you're going to meet by just p showing up is half the work just show up and meet people and, and just just be yourself Aaron, you have uh yeah i think i would de definitely recommend signing up for updates from the copyright royalty board from the copyright office showing up at, th at these kinds of educational events, knowing knowing what's happening in general is just so important. And also, I mean, holding the parties that are part of that settlement accountable and letting them know up front how you feel <laughs> um, as much as you can. The trade organizations that are that are a party to that, that are representing publishers and songwriters, making sure that um, that you're being heard in the beginning from the get-go when they're when they're settling, making sure that as they're walking into those negotiations that that songwriters are heard. And then and if they're not, then following up on the back end and submitting comments. And uh, let me just ask, you know, I, as the copyright office, I can't support anything in particular, but you both have worked with songwriter organizations. Has that been beneficial to you? Definitely, definitely. I worked for a long time with Artist Rights Alliance, um, which is not spe specifically for songwriters, but um, for artists and songwriters, just music creators in general. Um, and we developed an, an education program. That's how I started working with the U.S. Copyright Office um, around the Music Modernization Act, and that has that just that work was um, so gratifying, and I learned so much. And it's part of the reason why I'm able to participate today because I was doing all that research and learning, um, learning as much as I did, and it's just so helpful. And and part of what we our, our focus was like meeting people where they were. We were giving edu free educational courses in on the cutting room floor of studios or um, going going to places that people hang out to venues, not just going going to conferences, which is really important, but but doing it in different places that and, and sort of advertising it differently, um, trying to get people involved as much as possible. I think it's really, really important. A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, we're both on the board of SONA. Anybody wants to join, you can join. It's wearesona.com, Songwriters of North America. I highly encourage you to join. Um, there's tons of resources on there, lots of free stuff, and it's a great network of people. It's literally run by songwriters, and that's all. It's just an advocacy um, organization. Um, yeah, like just knowing, knowing that what you say matters and like, I like what you said too. It's not just about panels, like panels are really cool, but what really matters is like the everyday stuff. It, it matters like for this industry to really work. It's about those little, little situations, little opportunities you have to make, to make the situation better for other people. It's, 
even like when you're negotiating a split for a song, making sure it's fair for everyone. If you're a producer and you know someone else produced a song with you, making sure they get paid. If you can look out for the other writers on the song and give everybody a fee, these things really matter because it keeps people able to work in the business. So like everything matters. And so I, I, there are other uh, songwriter organizations out there. I'll just mention briefly. NMPA, National Music Publishers Association, does represent songwriters. And uh, NSAI uh, also represents songwriters and did uh, participate in the CRB proceeding as well. Um, there are even more that are you know, doing a lot of different pieces of work around um, songwriter education to check out. Uh, of course, the Copyright Office has a lot of information on our website. too. got to plug that. Um, I did want to ask, uh, just because we have this great opportunity um, with you on this panel, um, and I, I got, I'll give this a little bit of context. Um, you know, we saw that this report came out, and it's a yearly report. It's the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, and it was a report that talks about um, representation in the music industry, in particular, um, songwriters and and uh, producers are underrepresented in. Uh, songwriters that identify as uh, female are only 12.8 percent of the top, you know, 100 and uh, 1,100 songs on the Billboard charts. Producers, it's around three percent. I was wondering, you know, because we have this opportunity, um, could you talk about, you know, the importance of representation for these groups and how? you know, education might be beneficial, especially in the context of, of women and people of color in the audience. What what other things can you talk about around that area as? Oh, um, well, yeah, okay. So like around 3% of popular songs are produced by women, about 12% written by women. Um, those numbers are disgusting. Um, there's many reasons why they're so low. For one, as a female producer, it's really hard to be fairly credited um, over and over again. Uh, I have friends, myself included, have produced on records, and then when, when the record is due to be credited, they don't want to put your name on it. They don't want to give you your full fee. Um, certain producers don't want to share. They want to. They want it to come across like they made those chords, made the drum patterns, came up with the whole concept by themselves, and it's not fair. And it's all about right now. If you're in a position to do so, calling people out and saying no. Also, you can hold up a record. I don't give a shit. Hold up a record and be like, well, we know you're going to want to use this record. You know, it recently happened with a friend of mine. It's going to be like a big record. No one's not going to use this record at this point. I'm like, if they don't want to give you your producer credit, say, I'm not clearing, I'm not giving you permission to use this, this song. And that's, it is what it is. And that's okay. You're not, you're not, your job is not to make a bunch of friends. Your job is that you're a professional. This is your business. Your job is to be a respected music maker. And that's it. Be polite, be nice, be professional all the time. But like those things really matter. And that's why those numbers are so low. It's not that only 3% of women are producing. It's that only 3% are being fairly credited. And I'm going to keep saying that because I'm seeing it over and over again where my friends are not being credited and I'm pissed. And I, I am going up to producers and calling them out for it. And I don't care if they don't like me. I'm going to continue to do it. I think that's a really important point. Um, I think that in, in terms of the advocacy front um, and, and just work in music in general, 
not only uh, is that happening, but women's work is forgotten often. Um, it's either purposefully forgotten or it's just shoved under the rug. And so it's not in my nature to do this, but I have had to learn to talk more about what I do <laughs> um, and to encourage other women to do that um, because it really, I mean, you can get into a room with a bunch of dudes and it's like you're not there, um, <laughs> you know, but creatively and and on the advocacy side and the business side. So I think it's, it is really important to be outspoken um, and to not care what people think about about you for that yeah all right well i hope that the educational pieces that we've kind of given the people today are helpful in you know allowing people to have you know a piece of that discussion um because we want people to be fully armed when they have different conversations and education is a big way to do that yeah and i just want to just say like it's that that talk isn't it's for the women but it's really for the men because the men I have so many great men in my life, great male producers, great male co-writers who who speak up for me. And when I do something, it's so crazy. I can put a whole project together, but sometimes I need a guy to say, no, she really did do that. And then they believe me. It's insane. I have Grammys. I know. It's crazy. And it still happens to me. So big up to the men who are also supporting us and having our backs and speaking up for us. Like, thank you guys so much. And please continue to do that because you're making this a better industry for everyone. I feel like we could riff on this for another hour, but we had one question from the gentleman. If you want to step up to the mic and ask, I think we only have a couple minutes, so we'll okay, do it quickly. Two, one, one real quick one, which is, would you please, before you close, repeat everybody's name. Uh, and secondly, can you give us an example of a specific tune and just follow it through the process? You know, X amount of cents for this, Y amount of cents for that, because these things, Z amount for that, and you come out at the end, or is that just too difficult? Even if I had another hour, I don't think we could do that. Um, but I appreciate the question. That's something that's really hard about this, and which is why we're trying to demystify that, at least on the mechanical side, the calculations are really complicated. I don't want people to be afraid of it because I want them to have that information. And hey, it's fun because we had a panel called Nothing Boring with, a, with the Copyright Royalty Board. It's very important, but it is very dry. Um, so we, we don't have uh, the ability to do that generally right now. Um, but we have more information on our website that may fill in some of the blanks at the Copyright Office. I'm John Riley. I'm from the United States Copyright Office. I'm Erin McAnally. I'm Autumn Rowe. And thank you all for your time. They told us they have the room uh, turnover is very quickly for this one, but if you want to meet me out in the hall, I'll talk to you. All right. Thank you all. Thanks.